Welcome to the Pursuit of Growth podcast. This is Greg and Sammy, and we are super excited to be joined by Blake Harris. Blake is a certified financial planner and has been in practice since 2005. In addition to running a practice, he is a branch manager who oversees 19 other advisors. He has been a board member of the Financial Service Professionals Dallas chapter, as well as a member of the Financial Planner Association. Blake, welcome. How are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, man. Very thrilled that you're here. Sammy, how are you doing today, bud? Doing okay. Uh, Again, I I appreciate your time, Blake. I appreciate your time, Greg. I hope we make this episode the best episode anyone's ever listened to. Well, let's start with that because I saw on um, Facebook that previous to me, you guys had Miss Texas on here. We had Miss Texas International. That's right. Okay. That's correct. And so, uh, so you have a lot to live up to. Really. I was really nervous after I saw that, um, <laughs> but I'm sure it was spectacular. So is this the second one you guys have done? This is actually podcast number two. Okay. So, cool. uh, so we're setting the bar high. Mm-hmm. Um, excited to have you here. And, and before we started, we were talking a little bit about in the country and the world, one of the greatest fears that people typically have centers around financial literacy. And uh, we're really excited just to kind of talk to you a little bit about what you do, uh, maybe some suggestions and best practices that we can share with our audience. But really wanted to start out with, um, I think this is a question that a lot of people probably honestly don't have a good answer for. And Blake, that is, what actually does a financial planner really do? Yeah, so I don't want to be evasive with the question. The challenge is there's a lot of folks walking around with financial advisor, right, on their business card, mm-hmm. right? So what, what I could tell you is what I feel financial planning is and what the role of a financial advisor is based on my experience. And, you know, we, we, we serve in various different roles, right? One is in my world, I sit down with clients and we got to start with the end in mind, right? So it's not about here's X amount of dollars and we make this money grow. We talk a lot about what the goals they have for themselves, right? So what are some of the things you want to achieve short-term, long-term? What are the things that are really important to you? Um, what are some of the things you want to avoid, right? So what, what was money like growing up for you? We work with a lot of married couples and mm. no one ever thinks about money the same way, right? I've never had a husband and wife just completely on the same page right. because They have previous experiences and maybe one family handled money really, really well and the other one lived paycheck to paycheck, right? So um, it it serves a couple different purposes. One is helps us really understand what's the most important thing to them, right? What are we trying to achieve? What's really, really um, a priority for us both short-term and long-term? And then we back into, okay, well, what does that mean for us every month, every quarter, right? Every year that we need to make sure we go do to put ourselves in a position of achieving those goals, right? So I call it goal-based advice. Okay. Um, so that, that's essentially what we do. And along the way, um, there's other components that are intangibles that we serve is one is the accountability, right? So I, I talk to people all the time about what the most popular new year's resolution is. And what do you think it is? Weight loss. Yeah, weight loss. Yep. You ever go to the gym in January? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't even get on a treadmill. Right. Like, everybody is super motivated, the best intentions in the world. And then by, like, March, you kind of go back in and you see the same people that you mm-hmm. have. And, you know, just there. So I always say, listen, are you more or less likely to hit your fitness goals? If you're to go do things on your own or if you hired a personal trainer, especially if you're paying them, mm-hmm. right, what happens? So if you, Sammy, you miss Wednesday, right? your, your personal trainers pick them on the phone and say, hey, 
you know, it was, it was cardio today. Where were you seeing? Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. there's a different a level of accountability there. Um, and some clients need it more than others, but I think accountability is really important. Um, the other piece is objectivity, right? So when people, um, it, it's insane, but the neuroscience behind the decisions we make, right? So when certain things happen in our life, our first response is either fight or flight, right? That's just how we're geared. Yeah. Or freeze. And right. Freeze. Yeah, yep. sure. There's so, um, and that bleeds into our financial decisions all the time. And unfortunately, emotion is the worst thing that can be involved in people's financial decisions, right? They've got to have objectivity. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think there's the intangibles are accountability, right? Objectivity. Um, and then obviously experience, wisdom and knowledge based on, you know, education that you've gone through, um, you know, just, just understanding markets and saving strategies and, you know, I'm a CFP. So there's some additional training above having a series seven, a 66, those types of things. So, um, that's kind of long winded answer, Greg, but I think what it is, it's a relationship with your client to help, help them understand what their goals are, create tremendous clarity on what that means for them today right? Um, to help guide them towards the thing they share that are important to them, hold them accountable, um, and keep them un unemotional, uh, <laughs> along the way, which yeah. is probably one of the toughest things to do as a right. financial advisor. I can imagine too, uh, uh, when you have two conflicting personalities, even like in a relationship, having two different viewpoints of money, like you mentioned. So like myself, I'm pretty risk averse. Like, um, and I mean, uh, I'm, I'm pretty risky. Yeah. My wife, on the other hand, very risk averse when it comes to money. And it's a direct correlation to the way that we were brought up. Um, because her dad pity pincher and in a good way. Um, yeah. and then my family, you know, for there was times whenever it was tough. I knew when we had a hot dog sandwich, then maybe times were a little tough, you know, growing <laughs> up, I just, I just knew it. Right. So I was like, well, maybe we're going to get groceries next week. Right. But it was never really that bad, but you know, I, I can imagine, especially new couples sitting down together, like it, that kind of gymnastics you have to do with the emotions and the thoughts and the, we talked about this in the car, but now you're saying this out here. Right. Do you turn into kind of like a counselor? Oh, at, buddy. At times? Yeah, well, I've got a box of tissues in my <laughs> office and sometimes it can get pretty heated, but you're exactly right. I mean, to my point earlier, right? I've never sat down with a couple who are completely on the mm -hmm. same page. Um, so they need that guidance. And my wife and I, we have a financial advisor. And that may be weird for you guys to understand, but two things, right? One, that's great. That I, was actually a question yeah, that I'd written yeah. down to ask you. I cool. love this. Uh, yeah. I've read your notes before. <laughs> well, we shared. Um, Let's just be honest. So, uh, <laughs> one pin. Yeah. So, um, one, I, I do really well with accountability. I know that about myself. Um, so I seek out the accountability. And then secondly, I, I know I can be emotional with my money and I mean, you guys know my wife, but the last thing that I could do is tell her what we're going to do with the money. Right. Um, it's important. <laughs> like she will do the exact opposite. Um, so what it's a important. wise decision. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, and, and finances can be such a source of conflict All right. and marriage, you yeah. know? So it just, it helps eliminate it for, for some, to some degree. Right? right. I mean, there's still some heated conversations around what's important and what's not sometimes. Um, but you know, for the most part, it gets all figured out in that meeting. And then, Everybody can just go be good fathers, good husbands, good wives, good employees or bosses or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, mm. And we try to give them that peace of mind that the financial component of their life's taken care of. Yeah, we were talking before the podcast, and, and I'm sure the statistic, you can probably Google and find different numbers in different places. But there was a, a study that I found um, from 2014. So this is a little bit dated. It was done by the American Psychology Association. 
And they came out with a report that said that 64% of Americans extremely struggle with financial stress. Um, And regardless of it's 64% or 70% or whatever the number might be, I think we all know just from just looking at the world that we live in that it is a major, major issue in our country. And I'm fascinated when you talked about kind of the emotions behind financial um, literacy, financial work, and just in, in general, I'm really, really interested in human behavior and in psychology. And one of the things that I am curious to ask you about is how often do you encounter people that are intimidated to talk about their finances? Is that a, a block that you feel, especially men, are afraid to actually say, hey, I want to actually turn to someone for financial advice because one, maybe I'm embarrassed about sharing my, my income or my wealth, or two, maybe I've made some difficult decisions or poor decisions in the past and I don't want other people to know about it. Is that something you encounter often? And if so, how do you address that? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, <clears throat> asking for help is really hard for some people to do, you know, and when you walk into the door to, to have a consultation with a financial advisor, that's, that's essentially what you're there to do is right. Ask for help. And so I think there's a certain amount of humility you have to have, right. And self-realization. And, and sometimes that's, that's tough, right. But you're 100% right, and that statistic doesn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there's a couple of things that I feel contribute to that statistic. One is the evolution we've experienced over the past three or four decades, right? So an example, my grandfather, he retired from King Edward Cigars. Mm. Um, he retired in the 80s. He had, like, uh, you know, a pension. He worked there for 30 years, had a pension. He had Social Security. Um, he had about a half million bucks that he threw in a CD that at the time was paying him, I, I don't like around 14%, 15%. I don't know. That's crazy. But yeah. a lot of people's mortgages in the eighties was at like 18%. So right. that was just the interest rate environment. Right. So he retired and you know, he was, he was okay. By no means was he wealthy, but they traveled. They helped my brother and I out with our college. Um, they helped my mom out with some things. Um, so he did, he did good, he did well for himself, right? But you fast forward to today, um, you don't see pensions that much anymore. Right. Uh, Social Security is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, people are living longer. Uh, you know, we, we're not exactly sure if you're in your 30s, your 40s, what exactly is that going to look like, right? We've experienced two of the largest corrections in U.S. history in 2000 and 2008. Right. So market volatility is extremely high. And if you took a half million bucks and threw it in a CD right now, you might get 2%. Okay. So, so things are really difficult. And the challenge is that responsibility is now shifted to the individual to put themselves in a position for financial success. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that most people do the appropriate amount of diligence, research and understanding like to set themselves up to be okay. Right. So, um, that's what I think really contributes to that statistic is, um, 30 years ago, people don't have to worry for, about it cause they worked for the same company for 30 years, right? Had the pension, social security, all that stuff. Right. And then today people change jobs more frequently. Right. Market volatility is extremely high, right? You've got to take three times much more risk today, right? I was reading a statistic, um, uh, MFS actually provided this, but you have to, you have to take three times as much risk today to get a seven and a half percent rate of return really? than what you did in 1995. Wow. Right. You're so you're talking about 15, what is that? 20, how many years is that? Can anybody do math? <laughs> Dude, I don't know. Not Carry I mind. use a calculator. So you're talking about two decades ago. Yeah, yeah, you're talking 25 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So 25 years ago, you could have a pretty good balance of 
conservative investments for the most part, sure. um, some fixed income, some cash, and, and you could get a seven and a half percent rate of return. Um, you know, fast forward to today, you'd have to triple the amount of what's standard, it's called standard deviation, which mm-hmm. is a measurement mm-hmm. of risk to get that same return, right? So that's 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 why I think people are stressed. So in, in kind of a piggyback to that question, um, I think that, that we've all seen in our society probably over the last 25 years, probably going back to the 80s, you've seen a rise in materialism, in consumerism, the quote-unquote, the running with the Joneses, the comparing yourself to others. And we live in a world where literally you can buy anything on a credit card. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, absorb a ton of debt that especially young people that are living paycheck to paycheck, throwing their entertainment expenses on a credit card mm-hmm. and putting themselves in, you know, a severe hole moving forward. How much when you're working with people are you coaching on their lifestyle? and really talking about living within their means, those type of conversations, and how receptive are people when you start having conversations about, look, to achieve these goals that we want to do, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think my role is not tell them how much to spend on bananas, right, at the grocery store, (laughs) but it's to help them understand the impact of the decisions they make every day. And then for them to determine what's more important, right? And for them to prioritize. Makes sense. And just equipping them with the information so they understand here's the overall impact and then you decide what you want to do. But I think the sequence is all off because you're right, it's keeping up with the Joneses, right? So this is how most people kind of structure their financial lives, right? So they graduate college, um, they get a job, you know, they, they start spending money, having fun, going out. They've been broke college kid this whole time, right? Mm-hmm. So now they're spending a yeah. lot of money. I'm, I'm raising my hand yeah. over here. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it's, the it's same thing. So, yep. so you're doing those things. Then you maybe you get married, maybe you don't. And then you fast forward and you've, you've bought this house. You've built up basically these expenses that you have every month. And you're like, you know what? I need to start saving. <laughs> and then you say, well, I wonder how much I need to save to hit these goals. And a lot of people just can't do it because um, they've already committed themselves, Right to absorb most of the income and resources they have available just to make ends meet. And then they start thinking about their mm-hmm. goals, right? So what I try to coach everyone on is you almost need to view saving for your goals first, right? So in the earlier start, the easier, right? So Greg, what I would say is help me understand what's important to you over the next 20, 30 years, right? Um, let's say it's retirement. What's that lifestyle look like? What are the things you want to do? Do you want to travel during retirement? And then I translate that to a financial goal, Right. And then I say, okay, to hit that, we need to commit X dollars per month or per year, right? Go do whatever you want with the rest of it. Okay. Right. Mm. So now you can kind of put a checkbox on making sure you're hitting those goals. And then you build a lifestyle around whatever's left over. But everybody does the flip of that. And that creates the challenge, right? That's great. Yeah, that that definitely hits. That's such a, a better way to approach it. You know, what do they say? What's the old saying? And I'll, I'll butcher it, but it's like pay yourself first. Yeah, out of right? sight, out of mind, right? So yeah. the <clears throat> um, the easiest way to save money in what type of account? Yep. What is it? Um, okay. Checking account? Save, savings account? No, 401k, 401k, right? okay. Oh, gotcha. Why is that? Well, there yeah, we go. Because, well, you're, you're getting matched yeah. at some point, and it's in it's And, and it comes out of your paycheck. Comes out of your paycheck. You your paycheck, right, goes Got into your bank account. And then whatever's in your bank account, you spend, right? That's true. Um and some people, own the only systematic savings they have in place is the 401k. Right. Right. That is a component of what you need to do, but there's other things that you probably need to consider to supplement what you have through your employer. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you don't set those other things up to be systematic, just like you do your 401k, they won't get done. Mm. Right. It's, it's human tendency. We'll just go mm-hmm. and spend it. 
Um, so I, I think creating structure, right, to understand here's how much I need to save, here's the appropriate areas to save it, and help that money get out of sight, out of mind, and then then go do the things you want to do and buy the house and the car and whatever, right? Yeah. But you just almost need to view it as a liability, a liability to yourself and your future. Um, and if you think about it that way, life's going to be a lot easier for you in the long run. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into a question of, of just a little bit more about you and, and your background. So, you know, and I'll be candid. What, so did, were you always this way and, and thinking about your money and thinking about the way that you had your plan set up or, you know, going down the path of learning what you've learned, you know, getting into this world, was this something that even from a little kid you kind of had that viewpoint or no, was it something no, that you I learned had, a lot? I had no idea. Uh, yeah. What did you want to be when you were a little yeah, boy? I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, I got gotcha. uh, you. Know, Podcast I, host? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I was not a very responsible student. Um, I didn't do very well and, uh, in high school. I didn't have a good study habits. I didn't have a good work ethic. My brother... Um, was very driven, right? And he's he's an architect and does very well for himself, um, very sharp. And he he helped guide me. And I think probably around my like sophomore year in high school, I was like, man, I've got to get serious. Like, I want to go to college. How do I like unravel all the damage <laughs> I've done yeah. in like two years so I can get into a college, right? So at that point, I started trying to get an extracurricular things. I mean, I played soccer growing up and did some things, but got in student council. I was like president of the science club. And I don't even know anything about science. You know, it was like, it was those, you're trying to buff up your, so your I, resume. I think a, yeah. a good point to For make sure. is you don't always have to know about what you're doing to be president yeah, of anything. Exactly. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Is that another podcast? Yeah, it probably will. <laughs> yeah, for sure, right? Um, so in, anyway, I, uh, I, I got to college. I went to school at UT. Um, and I quickly realized that I had no idea how to study. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know how to learn because I, I didn't have the work ethic. So um, I studied really, really hard. Um, got, I did some extracurricular things. And I just made up um, my, I guess, my lack of... Um, and I wouldn't say education, just book smarts, just with work ethic, right? Mm. So um, just to kind of, I, I by no means had a 4.0 or anything like that. I think I graduated with something around like a 3.2 or something, but um, I worked really hard. And part of that was um, being the academic advisor for the Economic Association at UT. And my role was to line up a lot of outside professionals to come in and talk about their careers, right? Mm. And here's what you do. Here's the fun things about what we do. Here's the challenging things. Here's how we interview. And the whole purpose of that was for our students to get a good feel for what they uh, wanted to do, right? Uh, in the next phase of their life when they graduated college. And I kept, um, I kept kind of coming back to the financial services field. Um, one, because it was a people's business, mm-hmm. right? Um, and what really attracted to me to it is, um, I dictate my income. I dictate how much I want to work or how little I want to work. Um, and that really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then I was like, yeah, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be a stockbroker. First of all, the term stockbroker is like from the eighties. They don't really exist anymore. <laughs> Everybody has access to that information. Yeah, I was going to say, right? isn't yeah. my computer here yeah, a stockbroker? Exactly, right? Yeah. So, um, but that's what I thought I wanted to be. But so I started doing some, some research, my brother's, um, financial advisor, um, uh, I went and grabbed lunch with him, picked his brain. Um, and I know we talked about uh, Pursuit of Growth, so I, this is a funny story. So, and I can't name the firm, but I went and interviewed um, with this first firm, this prestigious firm. 
um, right out of college and I was a late bloomer. So I was 22, but I looked like I was 16. Okay. <laughs> right. So I'm in this interview <laughs> and, um, and I'm really nervous. And, uh, the woman interviewing asked me a couple questions and she started to inquire about, um, like my family and what they did. And she, she I, I could very quickly find out she was trying to decide if my family had money. Mm. Um, wow. and the answer to that is no, mm. they don't. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I candidly asked her, I said, Hey, are you, are you telling me kind of my success, um, as an advisor is dependent on if my family has money or not. And she, him and hauled around it. But the answer was yes, but she didn't say that, but I knew what she was trying to get at. Um, and then she proceeded to tell me that I probably needed to hire, um, like a, uh, like a, somebody to come and help me look older. Right. Um, the way I dress, the way I like with glasses I wore and things like that. And I just came out of there feeling pretty icky. Yeah. Uh, so oh, it was imagine. a complete disaster. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, then I, I found, I found a firm that I, I really enjoyed a lot of training, a lot of support, but it was tough, uh, you know, trying to grow a business and advise people that are in their forties and fifties when you look like, when you look 17. like you're 17, yeah. you know, Sammy and I were talking about this the other week. Um, when, when, when I was coming out of school, I got into the sales world and that was a big obstacle that I faced cause I'm, I'm five foot four and a half on a good day. I weigh about a hundred pounds. And when I got out of college, I looked like an 18 year old. And so here I'm trying to do presentations and have meetings with office managers or CEOs and I could tell just right away they had very little interest in me and they didn't trust me. And so it really took a lot of work for me to be able to show that, hey, I'm capable of delivering and in, in, in what I'm saying I can do and really building that trust. What did you do moving forward? So you went through that terrible interview. You got told you look like a little kid. Yeah. So did you make changes? How did you change how you carried yourself? Maybe how you spoke, how you dressed? Were there things that you did that you think might have helped you to, I guess, to... to, to for lack of a better word, um, look older. You know, I, I think the one thing that came out of that interview was that I had a huge chip on my shoulder, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And I was like, I'm going to show you. Yeah. Like, so it's a little bit of an I, ego check. Yeah. I was like, I, I don't need my family to have money. I will make this thing work. I know I want it, right? So just it, it instilled a tremendous amount of resiliency, Okay. right, within what I do. Um, and I think that is what came out of that. So, um so I, I did find a company and I grew and there was a lot of training and support. Um, and then I was, I was, I guess, I don't know if you call it lucky or I was just, I worked hard enough to have some success early on in my career, um, where they then asked me to be what's called an advisor coach at the time. Right. So I was like six or 12 months in and now they want me to like teach other advisors like how to have meetings and build financial plans and things. I'm like the that's, blind that's the fast track. The blind it? is leading the blind here. Right. right? <laughs> but I, I, my learning curve exponentially went up because you went from seeing a couple meetings and being exposed to a couple different client situations as you built your own practice. And now you're, you know, covering meetings for three or four different advisors. So you got exposed to so much more so quickly mm-hmm. and you just, you know, you, you, Candidly speaking, you have your Series 7, you have your 66, you get all these tests and licenses, but the reality is they don't really apply to the day-to-day stuff you do as an advisor, right? To some degree they do, but you, you learn by going and working with clients. Because ultimately it's people. Bit more, yeah. It's yeah. all, it's all relationship-based, based, whether it's, it's the people that you're advising, coaching, or the people that you're meeting with. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, you work with a case and they say, oh, well, I've got this deferred comp plan. You're like, oh, what is that? And you kind of dig into it, you study it, and you just continue to build your baseline of knowledge, right? Um, 
but I, I don't think I'm answering your question, Craig. I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but um, so so anyway, I stepped into the, the advisor coach role, became a, um, a a manager where now I oversaw like you know eight to ten novice advisors, um, and then we quit hiring novice advisors or firms, so we just went back into um, I went back into practice, right, mm. just full time, and at the time my practice was not very. Uh, sizable and I just almost had to build it from scratch again right and then in uh, um, late 2013 I was approached by one of my leaders to ask me to take over a branch in Dallas and I was like man my my practice is pretty good you know I'm, I'm playing golf every Friday uh, this is I make a pretty good living and now you're asking me to take on more responsibility yeah, yeah absolutely so I, yeah. I wanted to do some soul searching I was like do I really want to do this and what I found was a great opportunity to completely step out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. um, and take on more responsibility um, and be held to accountable to for more things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, a great decision. Um, it's made me better professionally. It's made me a better advisor. Um, and it's put me in a position to really influence a lot of people um, with, with, you know, the 19 advisors I have opportunity to work with. Well, well, I love your answer and and, and I'll challenge you and say you absolutely answered the question. And what I love with your answer is it shows that you took action and, you know, you, you have as a young person, a tough interview and it motivated you. And what you did was you took that energy and you went full steam. You started working and you can show that the reward paid off because you I think you mentioned in six months, you were already elevated to in essence, a coaching position. And then that motivation, that action just continued. And again, that's the whole thing that Sammy and I talk about with this podcast and the book that we're putting out. It's intentionally pursuing growth. Mm -hmm. And whether that's small, small increments that may just be small daily habits or little things that you can do here and there. And in many cases, they could be big goals, but it's just, that's where joy, peace of mind and accomplishment come from. And I love that story. I think that's a very, very cool way of kind of showing us your journey up into what you're doing now. Yeah, good. Well, good. Yeah, because there's so many times, I mean, like even myself, I have a financial planner. Um, you know, wife and I went there and I talked a little bit about the kind of two different types of people we are with money. And we talked to a couple of different people and, you know, you rely on someone else to kind of, you know, help guide you. Like, oh, who, who's your guy, right? I always like that question. It's like, oh, I got a guy. It's like, right. go talk to him, right? Yeah. Um, we ended up landing with somebody that, you know, really challenged us. And, and I put I put a lot of, of faith in him and I said, like, here's what I'd like to do. I want to retire by X, X date. And I, was, I said, I threw out 55. And he, and he was like, okay. And he's like, well, why? I said, well, my dad did it. And he was like, okay. And then we kind of dove in. So he had some of those great questions too. And then he's like, if you do this, you can get here. And, you know, showed us the charts and all that kind of stuff. So he really steered us in the right type of path where it's like, okay, well, 55 at what I'm doing now may not be realistic, but maybe make that 60. Sure. And then adjust some other things. But then he got me thinking differently about money uh, from even from my standpoint where it's, you know, just like Greg had mentioned, as soon as I came out of college, like I moved to Dallas, I didn't know, I knew one person uh, here and he lived about 30 miles away. Um, and I got that fancy credit card that came in the mail with my name on it. Yeah, and I buddy. Was like, wow. I was like, okay, well, you know, I don't, have, I can float this for a little bit, right? Only 23% interest. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sounded great. I'll pay it off. You know, it's like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put gas and groceries on it. Right. And that, I can get a it, TV right? now. Okay. Yeah. So my very first purchase was a TV. Oh, uh, went and got it. got a brand it's new critical. big screen TV, right? Didn't even have cable at the time. Um, but I had a TV. So yeah, that was the thing. So 
like going back to that, not knowing, just not learning and not understanding, max that thing out, you know, like, and then learning to repay that and, you know, just in a world of trouble at a very, very young age. So where I kind of wanted to go with this was I've got young daughters, um, and, and they're still very young now. Like I don't have to worry about them, but I'm trying to teach them good habits and good financial habits as well. I'm talking about saving, giving back to others, that kind of stuff. But what do you look at from a new parent perspective or maybe kids, you know, maybe from a parent's perspective of what you should be teaching kids from a parent perspective now so that they can be set up a little bit later down the road so that they're not in a mess whenever they get a little bit older. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, I'm still trying to figure out this parenting thing on my sure. own, right? So with a, f- a four four year old and a three month old, but yeah. uh, you're a zombie right now, yeah. 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 <laughs> God, look, come that on, bad. you just shared it. Took you six bad. months to become a financial <laughs> coach. I mean, let's get with the program, uh, dude. Right. So I I would say um, sometimes um, parents put the priority on setting up the child financially um, when probably the best thing they could do is take care of themselves Hmm. because we learn so much from our parents. Right. right? And if you instill good habits, um, and around how you manage money and how you save, um, where one, you're not going to be a burden to your kids later on. Right. Uh, they'll learn from that. Right. So, so back to, you know, what I was telling you when, when clients come in and a husband and wife sits down and let's say the wife's family saved, well, she's a saver. Right. Because her parents were. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then the husband, maybe he's spending money frivolously and doesn't even like really think about the card every time he swipes it. Right. And that's because his parents did it. Right. right. So a lot of times they just would replicate whatever they see and grow up with. And I think the best thing you can do as a, as a parent is take ownership of that um, and instill good habits. Right. And help them see what you do financially. Um, and then, you know, kind of guide them along the way. So. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, definitely. So okay. I'm taking notes now. So I've, I've got to change a couple of different things. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's my uh, my multi trips to the coffee shop. You know, might imprint on them sure. a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. So yeah, I think uh, you know when I when I look back at my life and and Sammy and I have some symmetry. When I got out of school, uh, I moved to Dallas shortly after. I guess it was uh, about six months after I'd been out of college. I was working kind of a part time job. Quit that job to move to Dallas, and. I went through about a period of three months before I had a job where I was bringing in any income. And so I was literally living on a credit card. And so piling up a lot of debt. But in my mind, I'll get a job and I'll pay it off, right? Oh, yeah. And again, it's just complete ignorance and just lack of, of really understanding what I was doing. On top of that, once I got my job, it wasn't addressing the debt that I put together. It was, okay, now I can start buying toys. Yep, now get that I TV. can start yep. going out more. I can start doing all these things. And I just developed a lot of bad habits and really was living this life of just, you know what? My financial situation will take care of itself. As I get older, I'm going to make more money. It'll all work out. So I literally lived this lifestyle of everything will work out for the better. It's all going to be okay. And as a result of that, I put myself in a major debt. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, accumulating or, or missing out on a lot of opportunities that I could be taking advantage of. And just, it was a mess. And I'll never forget, one evening I finally sat down and just did a simple budget. And I listed, I w- actually went back through my bank account and listed all my expenses and then put them up against to my monthly income and saw that my expenses far outseated, exceeded what I was bringing in. 
And then I went through just to look at all the miscellaneous items and just the dumb purchases that I was making. <laughs> and it was one of the biggest wake-up calls of my life. Yeah. And so for me, it was just putting together that budget and then start asking questions to people. Hey, how can I be smarter in, in what I'm doing? How can I actually save better? Where can I actually look to start investing? And that kind of leads me to a question. When you meet with people, you're, you're meeting with people from all different stages of, of life and of income levels. What are some of the more common questions that people ask you um, when they sit down to talk to you? And maybe what are some crazy things that you get periodically? Um, you know, I, I, probably the, I'll start with the crazy, right? Is, um, everybody wants to buy gold and they want to buy um, cannabis stock, right? <laughs> so I can't even advise them on cannabis stock. Uh, and, you know, gold now, is what why, why can't you advise on cannabis? Uh, it's like regulated uh, at the firm. And I think it's actually regulated at industry level and every firm kind of interprets a little bit different. Okay. But we just, we can't advise on cannabis stock. So, <laughs> yeah. but they always ask about it. And they, ask, they talk a lot about Bitcoin, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, so those are kind of the three go-tos, gold, Bitcoin, and well, cannabis stock. Because they feel like a gold rush, right? Like they feel like, hey, if I could just figure this out, no one else is thinking about it. Is right. that, is that yeah, where it comes well, from? I think, I think gold is... Is um, just something that that it's kind of like gold, uh, guns, and ammo, right? If right. you just buy a bunch of that, you'll be fine mm-hmm. in a zombie apocalypse, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think eating that's, all that gold, right? right? Yeah. I, and gold is, uh, you know, in my opinion, a pretty manipulated market, right? So you got to be you got to be cautious. So um, those are some of the, the crazier questions I get. I think the common question is, right? Uh, it's simple as, am I doing enough? Mm. You know, and and to your point, Greg. I think some people come in and they're concerned about working with a financial advisor because they're like, they're going to ask me to save every penny, right? And that's not what it's about because if you die tomorrow, what's the point? Right. Right. You've got to enjoy life today, but what you've got to understand is like, what do you need to be doing um, to achieve the things that are truly important to you? Right. And you back into those things and then figure out what the balance is Um, because it, you know, what if you die tomorrow? Right. Um, you know, what if, uh, what if college becomes free you know, yeah. at some point down the road and you've right. got all this money? So if it's up to me, it will be free. Right, yeah. So, you know, I, I think about Bernie Sanders for those say, out there. That was good. That was that actually, was actually really good. Maybe we'll have him on as a guest <laughs> this, uh, next podcast. Um, Greg so, will be absent, but yeah. you know, <laughs> so I, I think to, to answer your point, it's like, Hey, am I doing enough? And the question is enough for what, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, what do you what do you want to achieve? And I think so many people just shoot from the hip. They don't really take the time to think about their goals and what's important to them to actually write them down. And that's just such a big step in its own. Um, and then we can tell you if you're doing enough, right? And if you're not, how can we adjust and tweak? And by the way, your goal may change three or four times by the time you actually retire or want to hit it. Right. Right. So it's, it's, it's an evolution. It's, it's a, a very fluid, like planning process. You tweak, you tweak, you course correct along the way, mm-hmm. um, with a lot of those things. I think one of the hardest questions for me and going back into just a, talking to other advisors and that kind of stuff was like, what do you want your life to be like when you retire? I was like, well, hell, I don't, like like this you know like except not working like I didn't really have a good gauge that took a lot of like poking and prodding and understanding and then I was like okay and I still didn't don't think I nailed it right because I think again going back to your point it's going to vary you know and then all of a sudden you have kids and then now everything my whole life changes right so yeah I know that for me personally that was one of the ones they're like how much money do you want to have yeah 
And I was like, uh, did you, as much as I have now, I, I'm not sure. You know, did you and Cynthia do premarital counseling? No, we never did. So we Amber should and have. I went no. through it, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah. She literally never said that our uh, psychiatrist, whatever, our counselor, um, literally never said anything. She was just masterful at asking questions, right? That allowed us to figure out what we really wanted. And even though sometimes it asked like sounded like she was asking the same question, mm-hmm. just again, it made you dig a little bit deeper and really yeah. think about some of those things. And um, and that's that's really really important, right? And this kind of brings me to the other point. When, when people, a lot of my clients that I've got to convince to retire doesn't necessarily saying, I don't know if you can afford it or not. I can say you, you actually can afford it where a lot of the reluctance comes is like, well, what am I going to do? Mm. Like, because so much of their identity and value of uh, society is tied into their career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when they retire, there's this huge void that they don't know what to fill it with. All right. There's a huge spike in divorce and a huge spike in alcoholism mm. at retirement, believe it or not, um, because some people don't have anything to retire to. So I'm really glad to hear that your financial advisor is challenging to really think about that. Yeah. Because having the financial well-being to like actually be able to retire is important. But what's just important is like having clarity on what you're going to retire to. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, retirement looks a lot different than it did when people just sat on the front porch and you know, twiddle their thumbs and on the rocking chair, you know, people are a lot more active. They're living longer. They're starting businesses, you know, all those things. And you've got to think through that next chapter in your life. And, you know, when, when I think of myself and, and I think same, that's a great question. And I, I like, I love your answer, Blake. And it really made me think that, you know, when you think of your retirement, it's not just what I think right now, that it's going to be an ongoing process that needs to be something that I'm thinking about and intentionally working through for the rest of my life. And when I was growing up, I used to think, okay, well, you work, and then you're supposed to retire at 65, and then, again, an old man on a rocking chair, you know, twiddling his thumbs. As I've gotten older, and and I feel like I truly believe this, I don't know that I ever want to retire. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to work the job that I'm working now when I'm 90 years old, but I feel like I always want to be doing something, whether it's a passion, a hobby, a, uh, a side business, writing. I mean, there's so many different things that we can do that I think, to your point, we can find purpose in, sure. things that are important to us. And so I want to intentionally keep challenging myself on what do those things look like as I age? And they're going to change from when I'm 42 to when I'm 52, 72, and on up. But I think that's something that I hope more people really latch on to is my identity is not just my nine to five job. There's so many other things that can fulfill my purpose but it's like with financial literacy, it just takes an intentional plan and you got to put time and effort to thinking about it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, you're right on. I mean, so many times we have the conversation with, with clients about, um, when do you want to retire? And like, well, I'll never retire. I want to do something. Right. So it's not necessarily retirement people aspire for. It's just financial independence. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, Love that. it's, yep. it's like I'm financially independent so I can go do something else. And if I don't make money at it, it's, it doesn't matter. Right. I've got, I'm, I've, I'm good there. I got that. So now I can pursue all these things that I just have passion and conviction for, um, whether that's a hobby or, you know, um, if you're a charity or whatever it may be. Um, but just getting clients in a position where if you're not making money, it's not a big deal. We've got the capital, we've got the resources to re- to create your own paycheck. Now go do what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you know, you mentioned cryptocurrency earlier. It's kind of one of the crazy questions that get gets asked to you. And so that, how, do we, that, how do we get into Bitcoin? That, that is still that is still a, a kind of a buzzword. I don't think it's quite as 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 the craze as it was maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. Um, but you know, w- without a direct question, but just what are your general thoughts of of cryptocurrency of Bitcoin? Just you know, when people come to you with that. Um, what does the conversation look like? I, I literally don't even know enough to speak on it. Really? I, I really don't. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, the younger generation, the millennial generation, you typically ask about. And um, I, I, I can't advise them on it. And right. I, I don't even know enough to even say whether I like the idea or not, to mm-hmm. be candid. So, know. Greg, I, you know, if you've got any money you want to put towards <laughs> it, let me know. And, uh, and then I will be a good steward of your funds. Okay, so I guess so. Officially, we now will have Sammy will be my my <laughs> right. Bitcoin financial advisor. Not licensed, not representative of anybody or anything. I feel like yeah. we might be going backwards financially <laughs> with what we're doing. Here. Right. <laughs> well, well, speaking of crazy questions, so one of the things that I did before this interview is I actually went online and uh, found a list that showcases the most common crazy quote unquote questions that people type into Google in terms of financial literacy. Uh-oh. So, Blake, we're going to go kind of rapid fire on here. So what I'd like to do is ask you this question and just give us just your, your quick feedback and, and maybe advice on, on how you would address these questions. And, and maybe from a compliance standpoint, if there's anything that we run across that you're just like, no, just, just, just say pass. Yeah, And then gotcha. we'll move forward. I'm going to pass on that one, Pat. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and so I won't go through uh, each and every one of them, but the first question kind of ties into some conversation that we talked about earlier, but... Um, on the list, coming in in the top 10, Blake, how can I make money by selling weed? Um, we're going to have to pass on that one. <laughs> we'll go back to Sammy for that one later. Maybe right. he, can, he can give us some, uh, Bitcoin. some, some, I think uh, some ideas. Bitcoin. Wow. So that was number 10 or was that number that one? That was actually number nine. Oh, okay. Um, Blake, why am I poor and dumb? That is the most. That is the eighth most commonly asked Gosh, question. Man, that's I mean, a brutal search it there. It doesn't anybody have faith in themselves? That's that's horrible. Um, it's because uh, you got the credit card, you went and bought the TV, yep. and no, so basically just listen to Greg and, and, and Sammy, <laughs> that and that's my, why you're are dumb. You no. My search history exactly. is that what you pulled up? Okay. So I, I thought this one actually was pretty deep. Um, how can I steal money from a vending machine? I don't know, but I'd be interested. <laughs> So we'll get back on this one. <laughs> now, uh, all, uh, all seriousness, I'm actually interested in this one. Do $100 bills smell like maple? Um, so again, this is a list of top 10 financial questions asked on Google that go under their crazy connotation. Wow. So the, the back to, um, what would you say, 67% of, or 62% of Americans feel are, financially? Are stressed, extremely yes. stressed over their financial That's situation. probably because they're asking questions like this. <laughs> right, <Okay>. exactly. <laughs> well, then I'll, I'll wrap up with this question. This is actually the number one. Um, is it illegal to spend fake money? That's a, that's a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, you heard it on the pursuit of growth podcast from Blake. <laughs> Do not spend fake money. <laughs> so those were the, those were the crazy questions. Those are the crazy okay, questions. Exactly. Um, so I actually found another list of the top 10 most commonly asked questions. And number one, um, is how can I get rich online? Um, you can set up a savings account and start saving 20% of your income into an online account. You know, I want to go, okay, that's a great answer because I want to go into this and maybe this is something that we can talk a little bit more about is 
that kind of number, right? There's certain people that have said like, you need to be putting in, gosh, man, we went serious real quick, but some people are saying like, you need to be saving X amount of uh, how much do you need? Or you should be putting away this much. We talked about paying yourself first, yeah. kind of that, that theory, but is there like a, I know everyone's different. Every situation's sure. different sure, everything, yeah. but some of those guidelines, and, maybe some of those big Yeah. Topics. And Blake, before you answer, this is something that I found um, in some research that we've done previously. And again, this is a generalization. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think your answer will probably share some clarity on this, but the generality was that 50% of your income should go to necessities. 30% to disposable spending, and then 20% to savings. Now, again, where does this come from? I found it in like literally 10 to 12 different places. Okay. So no, when someone is, just looks yeah, at that, this, how should they interpret yeah, so, a statistic so this, like this, that? I think this is a really good conversation, right? So one, um, you, you don't save 20% just to save 20%, right? You got to figure out what, what do you actually need to save? Maybe it's only five because you don't want to do anything until you're 80 and you're going to live like on two grand a month, right? Maybe it's 30% because you want to retire at age 55, right? you know, whatever it may be. But if there are rules of thumb around financial planning, I would say percentage of savings could be one, all right? So this is the way I think about it. So um, the average American, okay, saves um, over the past 10 years, I was looking at this um, online before it came, it saves around like 7.9%. That's the um, average American? Yeah, over the past 10 years, they save about 7.9% of their income. Um, now, so let's take that in an example. So let's just call it 8%, okay? So maybe your tax, your effective tax rate is 20%. Okay, so now that is, um, so 29. So now you're living on uh, 71% of your income. Okay. Okay. So let's say that you start doing that at age um, 25 and you do it all the way to age 60. Okay, so that's 35 years of saving 8% of your income. Okay? Okay. Um, Now it's time for you to recreate your paycheck. So let's say you live from age 60 to 90. Mm -hmm. Never once have I had a client retire and live on less than what they are already accustomed to when they were making money. They always think they will, right? And some expenses absolutely go down, you know? Typically, they'll have the mortgage paid off, things like that. But, Sammy, let me ask you. When you're not at work and you go on vacation, what are you doing? Anything and everything? Yeah, spending money spending probably, money. right? Yep. Because you're not at the office, right. you know, eight, nine hours a day. Mm-hmm. So you've got to fill that time up with stuff. So some expenses do go down to retirement, sure. but typically luxury and discretionary expenses do go, go up. up. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very typical that clients live on exactly what they are accustomed to. So if I've been saving 8% of my income and I've been living on, call it 72% of what I make, what's the feasibility of saving 7% for 35 years to then reproduce 72% mm. right of the income that you needed for the next 30 years? I know we don't all have like a future value calculator in front of us, but it may be a little tough. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So when you think about a percentage of income that you save, and if we were to increase that by just call it 5%, right? So it took it from seven to 13%. That's not a 5% swing. That's a 10% swing because now you're saving 13% or call it a 12% of your income, right? Because you went from 7% to 12. Okay. Okay, and now you're taxed on 20, so now you're down to 32, so now you're living 
on 60, uh, sorry, I'm like 68, 67%, right? Right. So now you've not only decreased the lifestyle that you've become accustomed to, but now you're saving more income. So that's a 10% swing by what you're saving versus the lifestyle that you're going to live. Mm. Um, and that becomes a lot more of a feasible scenario. So does that make sense? A little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. I kind of got lost in the math. It's late in the day. Um, I, I think it makes sense, and I also think it drives him a point of yeah. how valuable financial <laughs> advising is yeah, without yeah. a doubt. And I, I was probably all over the place in my math, but essentially... If I can follow you, I think anybody okay, can follow yeah, you, so sure. you're good. Yeah. So what, and that, that surprised a lot of people when you put it in that context and give them that perspective, and then it drives them to the point, you know what, we probably do need to save more. Right. And probably living on a little bit less. Is that the biggest thing that you probably when you when you're coaching people and you're you're having those conversations? I, I think there's always an aha moment because I think very few of us really realize sometimes where our money's going or what it's gonna take to hit some of these goals we have for our future. Do you see that most people are kinda like, Wow, we do need to take a step back? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, more times than not, it's always that. Right. Um and it's it's just helping them understand like once again our job isn't to be like how much did you spend on groceries less you know it's it's literally hey our goal is to save x right over the past year to hit your goal uh to to put you on track to achieve the things you want in your plan um did we hit it great let's let's continue moving forward you want to save it a little bit extra on a monthly basis it creates more flexibility maybe retire a little bit earlier increase your lifestyle right Mm -hmm. Or are we good? And you've got a good, comfortable, you know, lifestyle today that you don't want to take away from to set, to increase lifestyle later, right? Mm. Um, and then sometimes it's, hey, we we didn't hit that goal, and this is what it. This was the overall impact. And I think just creating that clarity helps them to to have the discipline, right, and the want to maybe do better for themselves and be a little bit more disciplined with what they save. Yeah, it's um, always easier to take the drive when you've got a roadmap, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, but there are clients that sometimes they're just so neurotic about how much they need to save that they've oversaved. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm having to tell them, you need to go spend money. You need to take trips. You need to gift it to the kids. Like, you've got too much money um, that you're going to die with, essentially. So, like, some people oversave, and it's out of complete fear. Yeah. And I, I think that's why it's so important um, to focus on what you can control and what you can control is how much you save and determined by how much you save is getting clarity around what your goals are and what's important to you and then backing into that, right? And I think so many people put more stock and energy um, in things they can't control. Um, and that's like, hey, do I go buy Amazon or do I go buy you know, mm. Google or what's this five-star mutual fund, right? And they, they spend so much time on trying to find that next new hot investment um, when the reality is we have no control over those things. You know, you can influence them through professional management, dollar cost averaging and asset allocation. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we don't have control. What you have control over is how much you save in addition to how are you going to be taxed on that savings. And that's where a lot of people need to spend most of their time. So I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm just shaking my head right now like because a drop moment. Yeah. it's, it's, I mean, and it's just clear to me and I hope it's clear to the audience that's listening is, is just how valuable it is to just have good education when it mm-hmm. comes to our finances. And, you know, while you're talking, Blake, I'm just, again, you can't help but think how it applies to you. Mm-hmm. And when I'm looking to say, okay, well, you know, what do my current goals look like and how often am I addressing them? Typically, and I'm, I, I'm sure the answer is every client is different, but how often are you working 
and having these checkups with your, your, your clients or, or having these conversations? Yeah. So, you know, some clients need it more than others, right? I would probably say checking in two to four times a year, mm -hmm. uh, to view progress, check in. And then there's ad hoc meetings too, right? So Sammy just went through a job change, mm -hmm. right? That's an ad hoc meeting. There's a lot of things we've got to figure out, mm -hmm. right? With that transition, what are your new benefits look like? What do we want to take advantage of? What are some of the, you know, some of the things we need to do from your previous employer and do we roll it over? Do we keep it as is, right? Mm -hmm. Those things are really important as life evolves. Um, the way I describe it as we work with our clients is, um, you know, we want to have, um, we want to make sure that we have, we know exactly when the next time we're going to meet. Um, because if we know that we have that next meeting, right, we're going to be more disciplined with like, hey, I've I'm going to meet Blake May, and there's certain things that I wanted to make sure I get done between now and May. That's that accountability um, yeah. component we talked about. Yeah, right. but then there's there's things that come up, good, bad, whether it's inheritances, unforeseen expenses, uh, maybe somebody got let go from their job, mm. and that's when it requires an additional meeting to help them navigate whatever may have happened to try to get the best out of what, whatever may have occurred. There was a lot of tax strategy conversations, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and for me, you know, growing up, not knowing a lot about that, but then being also like a small business owner, you know, and, and owning a couple of different ones that do different things. Um, there's a lot of those tax strategies. Is, is there, I found that going to certain people, they're like, well, we need to refer you to a CPA or yeah. we need to refer you to a tax specialist, whatever that may be. What does that look like in a role? You know, like whenever I'm looking, say, want to maybe clean up or, or enhance my financial future, what's that first step? Is it financial advisement first and then find like someone that can help you take those tax strategies on or, or what's your guidance in that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think depending on the complexity of your situation, you may need a, a, a professional accountant, right, to, gotcha. to dig in. And some people may be appropriate just to do TurboTax, right? And, mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't provide tax advice, right. um, but you know, if you've got, you know, W2 income and salary, you got a mortgage and you got a couple of kids, you know, I, I think you might be okay with just going through TurboTax, right? Right. But if you have complexity, you've got some W2 income, some 1099, you know, that's when you really want to, um, and you, you grow your overall wealth and now you've got an uh, interest and income off of your investments that's when you want to start maybe leveraging somebody like a CPA when, gotcha. um, when things increase. But, um, I think prior to getting to that point, I think having a financial advisor is really important. Just kind of start um, there. Yeah. The and yeah. the way I think about is a, a CPA is a historian. So it's like, Hey, Sammy, what did you do last year that we could help decrease your tax liability mm -hmm. this year? Right. right. Well, the way I, I feel like my job is, how do I, how do I look, what can we do now to help minimize your taxes in the future? Yep. And you kind of work in hand in hand with an accountant and a CPA. Um, but I, am glad you brought, bring this up. Cause I, I think one of the things you mentioned was, what do you think one of the biggest challenges people are going to have? Right. I think one of the biggest challenges a lot of people are going to have, um, is the tax. So the two biggest challenges I see a retired clients have is one is medical expenses and two is taxes. Mm. Okay. And, and the reason, the reason, because of the reason I say that is what we talked about a little bit earlier. Where do most people save for retirement? The 401k. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's not a Roth 401k and just a traditional 401k, that money goes in pre-tax. Right? Mm -hmm. So you don't pay taxes on it now. Um, and it grows for you tax deferred. And then when you pull that money out at retirement and now comes as income to you that you're then taxed on. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So we're all about immediate gratification. We've talked a lot about that today, right? right. Spend, 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 whatever. What also, um, that carries over to taxes. And they're like, I don't want to pay taxes. I want to defer, defer, defer. Right. And what you're doing is you're creating this tax liability Mm. that's growing along the side of your investments. It's going to be this huge bombshell for you when you retire. Um, you know, cause sometimes we'll have clients call and they'll say, Blake, I need, you know, 10 grand from IRA. And I say, do you need me to send you 10 grand or do you want to pull out 10 grand? Cause those are two different numbers. <laughs> right. Right. Um, maybe we have to pull out 14 grand from your, you know, your IRA or 401k just to net you your 10, 10 grand. Right? Wow. Yeah. So, so the reality is where, you know, where the country's deficit is, mm-hmm. right. Um, and you know, relative where taxes are. So if I were to ask you guys, do you think taxes are going to go up, stay the same or go down? What would you say? Go up. Yeah. I would in, intend to agree. The reality is we don't really know. Mm-hmm. True. And anytime you don't know, you diversify. And a Wait lot until of, I'm in office. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people think, hey, you know what? I'm going to defer, 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 because when I retire, um, I'm going to be in a lower tax bracket. I'll live on less. Well, we already talked about that. Right. A lot of people don't live on less. Right. But even if you do, what's your tax rate going to be? True. You don't know, so you've got you've got to do things from a tax planning standpoint to well, you help decrease your taxable income today by leveraging things like the four hundred one k and other stuff like that. Um, but you do need to consider some tax free investments to go along um, in, in retirement because that'll really help bring down your overall tax liability mm-hmm. in retirement. Because whatever your so let's say that you have a million dollars saved up, well, if it's all pre tax money we've never paid taxes on, and I need you know. 80 grand a year from that. Well, now I'm having to pull out a lot of that, you know, million bucks just to net the 80. But if I got a million bucks and half of it's tax deferred and half of it's tax free, now I don't have to pull as much mm-hmm. to net what I need at retirement. Right. So it allows whatever amount of money you did save and whatever capital you did accumulate, it's, it stretches it out. You get, you get more out of it, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. How many people do you think in the generation that's starting to retire now, or, or maybe even or, or 20 years from retirement, how many people do you think are really set up not to be able to to live on what they have saved? We hear so much about how people have done a, such a poor job of saving. Do you think we're going to in for you know kind of a big challenge in terms of kind of as this population gets older? Um, I, I I do. Um, you know, back to the responsibility put on the individual to to set them up for for success. You know, it's. It's interesting. Um, now that I'm 15 years in, I'm having a lot more conversations about people now transition to retirement. People that I've been working with for five or 10 or 15 years. Um, and we're able to do it for the most part and put them in a position of success. So I, I, I get to probably see the better end of that because people are working towards it, right, in, in our relationship. Yeah. Um, but I think if you just kind of took a poll of just the average individual, I think it'd be pretty scary what we saw of, of people setting themselves up for the ability to actually even retire. Yeah. And I think it's also the mindset with money as well in the mindset of wealth. You know, we Greg and I were talking before the podcast. So what was that figure about the, the top percentage um, that you had? Yeah. So so worldwide. And again, this is a number that may have changed right. since since we, we recorded or wrote this down. But according to, um, I think it was Credit Suisse that released this, to be included in the top 1% in, 
of income earners in the entire world, so we're looking at a world figure here, a household income of four has to pull in $136,000. That puts you in the top 1% wealthiest people in the world. And that's a figure that I think shocks a lot of people yeah. because here in America, well, that's a substantial amount of money. Sure. I don't think anybody would think that would put you in the top 1%. Yeah. But it goes to show that worldwide, when you start thinking of, of, of countries like India and Africa um, and, and across Europe, that the income levels are much, much lower than what we see here in America. And, and in fact, there's another statistic I saw that in India, for example, the typical man brings in an average income of less than $2,500 a year. Now, again, fact check me on that. Sure. But, um, but I think it just goes to prove the point that here in America, we are in an extremely fortunate situation in terms of the income that we bring in. But I think it's also a direct correlation of our spending. And we're definitely living a very lavish lifestyle, even those that are in the middle and sometimes lower class in comparison to what we see in the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, there's... but. The other component to that is cost of living in other parts of the world is can be peanuts compared to what it takes to make ends meet here. That's True. correct. It really can. I mean, um, I think I can speak to this. So I have, I have a client that um, is here in the States and when they retire, they're going to retire to Kenya. Um, and we were talking, cause I didn't know. I was like, well, how much would you all need? And you know, we get by. It's a really good point. Yeah. They're, they're like, we can get by on like, you know, two grand, 2,500. I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, I'm probably live like kings. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so I, I think maybe that statistic, sure. as, as that is um, shocking as we first hear it, I, I think as you maybe look as at... you drill into it a yeah, little bit. Yeah, because, I mean, that's third world countries. I mean, mm-hmm. that's everybody, right? right. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, by, by no means would that put even get you sniffing the top 1% in America, for sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I wanted to, to, to visit with you about is I love that you mentioned in your journey and your growth, it was a really big step and a great step ultimately for you to take over this branch. And now you're leading, it's 19 employees, is that correct? Yeah, so we've got 19 advisors and we've got uh, um, seven, seven operational folks, staff. Yeah. What were some of the bigger challenges when you came into this role that you were faced with and really making sure that this branch was a success? Um. You know, uh, I would say culturally that the branch was n- not bad, right? But what what I was very mindful of is just because the title on my business card said, you know, branch manager. I, th- I think leadership is not something that you're entitled to. I think it's something you have to earn, right? And so my philosophy was I've got to create value in these people's lives um, to create some deposits, Um so when it's time to maybe make a withdrawal and deliver a tough message or challenge them professionally and give them that push, I've got the deposits there to do so. Right. right? So I think one of the things I was really mindful of is making deposits along the way, developing the relationships so I can then try to help partner and push them, you know, to, uh, to strive to do better. Right. Um, the, uh, there was just so much, and I'm still learning every day, Greg. Uh, just there, there's, there's things that um, you've got to deal with with different personalities. Um, you know that, that that's that is one of the more difficult things, like that you have to do as a leader uh, of, of a business. Is sometimes there's conflict within it, um, and it, to to me that is. Um, that's probably the more challenging and draining thing that I have to do. Mm-hmm. What I really love to do is help somebody get somewhere, which hopefully they would not be able to get without me. Right. So it's like, 
I want to, I want to get them somewhere where they couldn't go on their own, um, and really partner with them. And, um, the other thing that I want to make sure is everybody's motivated by things a little bit differently, right? So some mm-hmm. person may say, Hey, I want to go from, you know, making $200,000 a year to, to a half million. Right. And some people may say, I want to stay making $200,000 a year, but I want to start working three days a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, some people say, I don't really care how much I make. I just want to try to help as many people as I can and influence. Right. Um, and, and work with more charities and things like this. So I think what's really important is understand people's why mm-hmm. of why that, and not just assume, you know, and then I, I feel like that puts you in a better position to help them. Um, and, and also allows you to be a little bit better received by the advice and, um, and, and, you know, leadership that you give them. All right. So I'm gonna throw a fastball at you. Oh, what's your why? You know, um, my why has changed over the years, right? So there was a, um, there was a, uh, Doug Linick, um, put together this, uh, this thing called finding your core values. So you basically start with like 50, like cards and they, they all say something different on them. Okay. Right? It may say like competence, um, family, health, wealth, reputation, um, efficiency, right? So there's like all these things. And you kind of funnel them down to figuring out what, what is your top five core values? And the whole, the whole philosophy behind this is like, if you know what your five core values are, um, cause there's your ideal self and there's your actual self. <laughs> and if you don't drink, if you don't figure out what your five core values are, um, it's really hard to make everyday decisions that are in alignment with those values. So you got to figure what out they are and then make decisions in alignment with them, whether it's professionally, personally, financially, whatever, just as long as they're at the core of those five values, you're in a good spot. So when I first started when I was 22, what do you think my like five core values was? Drinking, <laughs> chasing girls, yeah, was, yeah. maybe movies, soccer, and I'm just going to throw one out there. TVs. Probably like, TVs. Buy, buy yeah, all you, the TVs. You nailed like three of the five. Well, I, I know you're big into ballet too, so ballet's probably yes. probably on there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> just my flexibility. Uh, no, so there were things like... Um, I don't think achievement, uh, wealth, um, you know, recognition, th- those types of things. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's still some of that, but now I, my, my wife's my family. I know that's a little cliche, but, and when people would tell me that answer <laughs> and I didn't have a family, I'd kind of roll my eyes, but like now that I'm in it and I'm a father and a husband, like that's my why. Right. Yeah, and I, th- I think, um, you know, it's a partnership with Amber. Um, but I, I want to create an example and a foundation of, of, for my family. And that's not always about, um, that's not always about how much money you make. It's about like, are you going to work every day with passion? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that always like upsets me is when I'm in the elevator and I'm like going up in the elevator and here's somebody like, Oh God, eight hours, eight more hours and then it's the weekend. I'm like, I cannot imagine living my life that way. Like, like you think about how many hours in a week are, I heard some statistic when you think about you started working at 20 and you retire at 65, how much of that makes up our entire life. And if you're not doing something you're passionate and enjoy, like you're wasting such a big part of your life. So that's, that's my why I want to, it's not necessarily about the money I make. It's about being passionate having conviction for what I do, allowing my family to see that. So hopefully they make the same decision. 
Uh, and then, you know, financially, I want to be able to support us to, to give us opportunities to do great things. Um, but by no means do I want to spoil my kids or anything like mm-hmm. that. So that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a really great why. I think that as you go to in life and, and I have two young daughters, so, um, it, mine has varied, you know, as well, you know, I mean, even making a, a pretty big career shift that I just did recently as well. A lot of it did go into those kind of questions. Am I doing this selfishly? Yeah. Am I doing this you know, just for me, for, for my creative aspects, for my creative career, whatever it may be. Um, but then as you get the support and the buy-in from family and friends and, and the opportunities there, and it's, it's fun. It's like, am I smiling? When I, when I lay down at the end of the night, am I smiling? When I wake up, am I smiling? Like, is it with the kids or is it for the passion for the job, whatever it may be? So I think that's great. And it goes back to the mindset. And that's something we talk a lot about in the book as well. Um, because I think a lot of people are searching for those types of answers, but they need to figure it out on their own. But I think you've provided some good insight, even from the entirety of our conversation, but even hitting on those last little bits there too. It's like some people that they can pick up some actionable things to, to take with them as they start to either figure out their new way, um, improve upon their way, or maybe they do have a big decision to make and, and what are some of those factors they need to take an account for as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to share that actually this week I actually read a, a Gallup report um, that was, I guess it's two or three months old, but they did a study on workforce engagement and the number they came out with shows that only 33% of American workers are engaged and what they described as engagements that they, they were actively felt like they had a, uh, a, a, they made a difference in their job they woke up excited to go to work, and if you think about that, that means close to 70% of our workforce is unengaged and not happy about what they're doing, the people that you talk about in the elevator. And I can't tell you how often I hear people say, gosh, it's almost Friday, it's almost Friday. Mm-hmm. And I think so often people want their jobs to give them excitement, to give them passion, where I believe it's our responsibility to give passion to our work, no matter what that is. Now again, search grow, find things you love to do. And when you find things you love to do, it makes it even easier to give that passion. And I think it's clear from our conversation today that that's what you have. And I love just, just hearing you talk about what you do, how you're able to help people. And you can just see it in your expressions Mm -hmm. um, of just, you really care about the work you do. And it's obviously very clear. You're very good at it. And uh, I've got probably more takeaways than we have time to, to mention um, but I thought it would be fun to kind of go around the table just shortly and just maybe uh, share maybe two or three things that each of us took away from the conversation. So, Sammy, I guess I'll, I'll put you on the spot. You want to start out and, and share a little bit of your thoughts and feedback? Yeah, a lot of the things you mentioned just there at the, at the end really hit with me too. But I think uh, right at the beginning you talked about goal setting. And that's a major part of what we, we talk about in the book. And a lot of people have never done that. You know, you said something that also, you know, as the times change, we get away from this, but write it down, like physically yep. put that down on yep. paper. That way it's tangible. You know, it's not just stored in a Dropbox somewhere online or Google drive or whatever it may be. Um, but then also understanding about your financial independence, you know, what does that look like for you? How can you achieve some of those goals? But then that last little bit on the management perspective too, and I didn't write down the, the whole quote. So I, I want you to kind of maybe reframe it for me, but deposit into people. And I really like that, that understanding, but, you know, to be able to then withdraw whenever you need to, you know, or have those tough conversations, whatever. I thought that was a really good piece there. It's like, you can almost make a little 
quote card for you and, and share it with your Well, name I stole it right? from somebody, so I, good, I can't take good. credit. I, I just know I, but yeah, it's all about, you can't make withdrawals if you've never made deposits, yeah, right? Yeah, and I when I think that. about withdrawals, it's asking somebody to do something. Sure. And, um, and it usually it's for what's best for them, mm-hmm. right? But if you haven't, if you haven't made those deposits, it's not going to be well received. Nice. All right, Greg, you're on the spot. Well, I just I just had to come up with three new ones because you literally <laughs> just mentioned I think uh, the three that I had written down. Um, but one, I love the accountability piece that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation. And I think in so many things in our life, um, the difference between us achieving a target or a goal um, sometimes can be as powerful as the accountability that we have in ourselves or how we surround ourselves with others to help us to be able to do that. I love when you talked about having a system in terms of savings. And so, you know, we mentioned one of the great things about the 401k is that you don't even see it. It just goes right into that to that uh, deposit. And so how can you look at savings similarly and start looking about, hey, let's pay that first before we start looking towards um, other types of spending. And then I love the conversation about why. And I think you really, really hit a home run with that answer. Um, Why is everything? You know, we all have desires. But it's the why behind the desire that matters. And when that why is on fire, that's when things really, really get done. And that's, I think, when you really have success and passion for the things that you're doing. So I'm big on trying to always ask myself, what are my whys in certain areas of lives? And what am I doing to um, really focus, plan, and set goals to be able to achieve those whys? So, man, fantastic stuff. But would love to hear any of your thoughts, Blake. Yeah, I think the one thing that I would just leave everybody with <clears throat> from a financial planning standpoint, is the uh, Dalbar's 22nd annual quantitative analysis of investment behavior is what gave us the statistics. So if you look at the S&P 500 from 1996 to 2015, the average rate of return was 8.19%. Okay, mm-hmm. Some years more, some years less, right? But on average, 8.19%. The equity fund investor during that same time frame, so people going out and trying to find different funds to maybe outpace the S&P or whatever, just invested in equity funds, okay. averaged 4.67%. That's a huge discrepancy. Yeah. What, what do you guys think? What do you think contributes to that discrepancy? Well, first you're asking the wrong person. It's emotion. One. Right? It's, it's um, emotion, yeah. But, but two, Absolutely. And I mean, when, when you're going that route, what are you typically making your decisions on? Where you, I mean, how often do people come to you and say, oh man, I've got this brand new company, this new stock, they're doing this and this, it's going to be sure. awesome. Mm-hmm. It's that emotion taking off. How have they, have they drilled into, you know, the behind the scenes information with the business? Are they looking at, at, um, you know, cash on hand, all these things that we know are important with stocks? No, it's all emotional. Well, it's, it's, yeah. The one thing that I try to, to coach my clients on is we have to be consistent. Mm-hmm. We have to behave the same way in up markets as we do down markets. We can't be really aggressive when markets are going really well and then all of a sudden be super conservative when things get choppy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's what happens, right? So a perfect example of that is if you're investing in your 401k, you're putting 8% of your paycheck into it, you get your quarterly report, um, and it looks great, right? It's rocking and rolling. You're like, man, I'm going to jump this up to 10%, right? So now you get 10%. Now we have an economic cycle and it starts to downturn. You've been putting 10%. The next quarter comes by. There's less money in the 401k than you had the quarterly before. And you've been putting 10% of your paycheck in it. Right. What do people think? I'm throwing my money away. Right. right? So what am I going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back. Yep. I'm going to not save as much. Right. Or maybe I've moved to cash. And they change their investment behavior. So what I would say is 
you've got to figure out what your tolerance for risk is and you've got to stay consistent with it. The good, the bad, the ugly. You've just got to be consistent. You've got to stay disciplined, be unemotional with your money, have that objectivity, um, and create forced savings. Hmm. I think you can't end on a better comment. Blake, dude, this was awesome. <laughs> cool. And, uh, you know, I told Sammy when we came into this podcast that I really just want to ask short questions and listen. Mm-hmm. And, man, I appreciate the thoroughness of your answers, the depth of your answers, the conversation. I think this helped me. Yeah, for sure. I think this is going to help people that are listening. And, uh, man, it's just fun to talk to you, man. And we didn't even really touch on some of the, the other things that I want to touch on. So I will help challenge you to uh, want to come back on this podcast yeah. again soon. Because, one, we glossed over that your granddad worked at King Edward Cigars. Like, <laughs> I want some more stories about that. Um, we talked about soccer. You know, we were on a soccer team together at one point in time. Yeah. And I think we won a game. Um, we did win a game. Uh, yeah. Come on. We, we, did, did we, we only won one? I think we won one, yeah. Was it one? Okay. Huh. And I was kind of throwing that out there. I couldn't remember if we won any of them or not. But, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. So, I think there's a lot more that we could talk about and to get to know you a little bit more. And, and hopefully the people, you know, that are listening to this have, have found your information useful and valuable. I know we have. But then also, is there any way that they can connect with you online? Is there anything you, you want to promote? Yeah, I mean, like I'm that? on LinkedIn. My okay. name's Blake Harris. I mean, more, more than happy to connect with you. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, if you've got any questions, or be happy to visit. Sure. Okay. Very good. We'll have you back on soon. And uh, let's also talk about this upcoming trip to Rome. Yes. That, uh, that you're going to be taking. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be great. Maybe get Very that recap. Good. Recap of Rome, right? Recap from Rome and maybe a little financial advice along the way. So we'll wrap that up. Thanks once again for listening to the Pursuit of Growth podcast. Blake, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks.